Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. The state of Vermont is proud of its farms, its farmland, and its farmers. But when a farm pollutes nearby water supplies, residents find that farms get different treatment, too. If we were having a water issue because we had a gas station next door that had a gas leak, obviously something happens really fast. But it's just like not even being addressed. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up, an investigation into where agriculture and environmental protection collide. We'll also look into another problem facing dairy farmers today. They rely on a workforce made up largely of undocumented workers. If they swoop in and clean out my workforce, my wife and I can't run this place by ourselves. And we'll visit a driving school that's trying to answer that age-old question. It's winter in New England, so why can't people drive in the snow? I spent an incredible amount of time uh, learning the old way, which is hitting things. It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region, with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This is Next. I'm John Dankosky. Big news this week about marijuana, both here in New England and also in Washington. Let's start in Vermont, where that state became the first to legalize recreational marijuana through the legislative process. Other states, including Massachusetts and Maine, have done it through citizen referendums. Both of those states, as we've reported on, have been slowly working on legislative fixes to those laws that will allow for retail sales and taxation. Now, Vermont's bill doesn't do that yet, but Lieutenant Governor David Zuckerman hopes the state will put a system in place to regulate and sell the drug. The legislative system is catching up with the public. And people are getting over the hurdle of this is an absolute evil that doesn't exist. And somehow by supporting this, we're bringing it into existence and more a recognition of the reality that's already out there in Vermont and that we now have to move forward with a complete conversation. In Connecticut, where medical marijuana is legal, the state announced this week that they'll award three new licenses to dispensaries. But hanging over all of this is an announcement by U.S. Attorney General Jeff Sessions. He's rescinding an Obama-era policy against enforcing the federal law, criminalizing the drug. He's given prosecutors in those states discretion to prosecute violators. And the top federal prosecutor in Massachusetts has said he can't promise to take a hands-off approach to legalized marijuana. So where exactly does this leave people who want to use the drug legally, either for recreation or for medicine? Kate Murphy is a cancer patient who sought relief from the nausea of chemotherapy. She founded in medical marijuana for more than four years. A 2017 study in Washington state, another state where cannabis is legal, even without a prescription, found that a quarter of cancer patients use pot to help with physical and psychological problems. As Karen Weintraub from WBUR reports, large numbers of cancer patients in Massachusetts are also turning to cannabis, but there's a stunning lack of medical supervision over the type and the dosage they're using. Chemotherapy left Kate Murphy feeling terrible. They give you pills that'll help take some of the nausea away, but for the most part, I felt nauseous 24 by 7. After losing 15 pounds from her already slim frame, 
She remembered what a fellow cancer patient had told her while she was waiting for her first dose of chemotherapy. Make sure you get some medical marijuana. Scientific research supports the idea that cannabis can treat the nausea of cancer therapy, in addition to some types of cancer-related pain. But only about 1% of the doctors in Massachusetts hold a license to prescribe it. And there hasn't been much interest among cancer care providers in cannabis. Last June, the Massachusetts Medical Society approved a new online curriculum on medical marijuana. Six months later, only 27 medical professionals had taken the section on cancer care and cannabis. For Kate Murphy, a 50-year-old mother of three from Lexington with stage 2 breast cancer, it was a struggle to find someone to help her navigate the medical marijuana system. In terms of figuring out what to get and what kind of marijuana there is, there's more to it than you can ever imagine. Murphy asked her oncologist at Mount Auburn Hospital in Cambridge if it was okay for her to use marijuana. The doctor didn't say no, but didn't offer any further advice. And Murphy says she got no help from patient advocates or nurses either. They said, yes, you can look into it, but I felt sad because you're so lost and you're so sick and this is so not your area of expertise that it was very upsetting to me to not get direction one way or the other. Murphy ended up getting advice from Dr. Jordan Tischler. Tischler owns and operates Inhale MD, two Boston-area medical marijuana clinics. He says he has cancer patients referred to him by the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and the Mass General Cancer Center. Both Dana-Farber and Mass General told WBUR they had no experts on staff to speak with us. Tischler explains that medical centers, particularly those that take federal funding, are in a tight spot because federal law still classifies cannabis as an illegal drug. Most of those institutions are prohibited and or afraid of the prohibitions from the federal government and so have opted not to pursue this within their domain. Last week, U.S. Attorney General Jeff Sessions threw another wrench into the system by deciding to resume enforcing federal laws against marijuana, even in states where it's now legal. It's not clear yet what, if anything, that will do to Massachusetts's medical marijuana system. Here in the Commonwealth, state-licensed medical marijuana dispensaries are the intermediaries between doctors and patients. Dispensaries offer a huge range of cannabis products, from vaporizers to gummies, at various doses and strengths. But Tischler warns his cancer patients against getting advice on cannabis, either from the Internet, which he says is loaded with misinformation, or from the counterfolks at the dispensaries, who are not allowed under state law to give medical advice. Fundamentally, they're salespeople. Their level of training, I often say, is about the level of a Starbucks barista. So I tell patients, look, if you wouldn't ask your coffee guy about your health, probably you shouldn't ask these guys either. The good news, Tischler says, is that cannabis is generally very safe. He recommends that cancer patients buy their marijuana from a dispensary because the state's inspections ensure a safe, consistent product. The worst side effect for most patients, he says, is an unwanted feeling of getting high when they've taken too much. Norton Arbellas is Director of Government Affairs for New England Treatment Access, which grows and dispenses medical marijuana. At the Netta Dispensary in Brookline, housed in an old bank building, Arbellas says his staff's goal is to educate patients, in part by offering anecdotes from previous patients' experiences. We're not here to give medical advice. We're here to educate people about our products. And certainly uh, the information that the physician gives is paramount. What we can say is we have heard from other patients that a particular modality such as a vaporized or a topical or a pill form has helped this particular type of condition. 
And Arbelez says that medical marijuana's relative safety means patients can afford to be a little imprecise about the kind of marijuana they use and how much they get. There is some room here for the patient themselves to experiment and to see what works particularly for them. In the end, that's what Kate Murphy did, experiment. She tried a few joints and smoked a few times with a pipe. She spent a total of $700, none of it covered by insurance, including Dr. Tischler's out-of-pocket fee, a $50 state license, and the cost of the cannabis. But Murphy says just a few months of occasional smoking made a big difference. For the first time in probably, you know, six months, I could eat. My husband remembers he came home and I was like actually up instead of lying around thinking about how how sick I felt all the time. But I was up and cooking, which was not anything that, you know, that I had done since I hadn't felt well. Murphy stopped smoking when her chemo ended a year and a half ago. She's now cancer-free. She says she wishes patients didn't have to work so hard to get the information they need about medical marijuana. And she has no regrets about having used it herself. That's Karen Weintraub of WBUR reporting. As all of New England was gripped with record-setting cold temperatures over the last few weeks, you may have been wondering, will it ever be warm again? But that cold snap also prompted doubters of climate change science to come out in force. Among them, President Donald Trump, who tweeted, in the East, it could be the coldest New Year's Eve on record. Perhaps we could use a little bit of that good old global warming that our country, but not other countries, was going to pay trillions of dollars to protect against. Bundle up. Many responses to his tweet included links to a pretty cool visualization tool called the Climate Reanalyzer, which was created at the University of Maine's Climate Change Institute. It showed a globe with one small corner, much of the eastern U.S., blanketed with colder-than-normal temperatures, and the rest, a light with red, showing temperatures above normal. We wanted to learn more about the tool and what it can tell us about the realities of climate, so we turned to Sean Burkle. He's Maine State Climatologist and Research Assistant Professor at the Climate Change Institute at the University of Maine. I started off by asking him about the difference between climate and weather. Well, the primary difference is weather is what you experience now, today, uh, perhaps over the next week, whereas climate is average weather over uh, typically years, decades. Climate is really a matter of understanding long-term trends. Can you just talk us through what exactly the, the climate reanalyzer shows people so they can understand what weather is like in the world at any one time? Sure. In the last couple of years, the site has been getting uh, more notice, particularly whenever there's a, an extreme weather event. Uh, but the graphic that appeared in many media articles, it's of uh, the, the near surface temperature anomaly. And that word really just refers to the a daily temperature anomaly in comparison to a climate reference for the same day of the year. So what, what we find when we look at a temperature anomaly map for the last couple of weeks, it could be a, a one or two days within that period, or really the two weeks, you see that uh, aside from North America, particularly Central and Eastern North America, uh, most of the globe shows temperature departures above normal. And so most of the, most of the world is uh, warmer than, than it has been historically. But for this particular event, and we can call it a weather event, uh, the circulation of, of the atmosphere was just so that air was being pushed out of the Arctic into North America, and it was being pushed out by a circulation over the North Pacific in Western U.S. and Canada, in which very warm air was, was being brought into the Arctic. And so air had to be displaced. 
And because of the circulation across the hemisphere that uh, happened to favor this particular pattern where air was being funneled right over much of eastern Canada and the U.S. So in essence, the, the cold air that we were feeling for all this time was coming down from the north because warm air was, was pushing it out of the way. So was the cold snap that we just had in New England because of climate change? One way to look at this is that weather develops in response to a number of different factors, including what the boundary conditions are. If we consider what the current state of the world oceans is, what the, what the sea source temperatures are in the low latitudes, and how much sea ice there is, the, the chemistry of the atmosphere, those are boundary conditions. And then, of course, there's solar heating. And the weather that develops at, for any given climate state is impacted and affected by the boundary conditions. The boundary conditions today and now in the, in the past couple decades are much different than they were a century ago. That's the climate warming. Over time, the boundary conditions become altered by the gradual accumulation of heat. And so the circulation of the atmosphere is going to respond to that. And over time, things might be a little different. The, the annual cycle at a given location, might the, uh, the growing season will be a little longer, the cold season will be a little shorter. This particular weather pattern that we experienced the last couple weeks Although, in an isolated way, it's a weather phenomenon, it could be related to the warming Arctic. But there's another piece of climate change that, that, that you follow that I want to talk about. What do we know about climate change causing just worse storms and storm surges? We find in the North Atlantic, in, over the historical record, there are intervals of a couple decades where conditions are cooler than normal, warmer than normal, cooler than normal, uh, but with an overall upward trend. Hurricanes... Uh, for the most part, will increase during the warm intervals in the North Atlantic. And one thing to point out is uh, for a couple of years, there was a lull in hurricane activity, uh, 2014, 2015. And those two years, the North Atlantic uh, had a, a weak to moderate cooling. Uh, but the last couple of years, uh, the basin has warmed up again. And uh, so that, that supports the idea that when the, when the North Atlantic is warmer, there's more fuel for the hurricanes. There's, uh, the warmer sea surface temperatures provide moisture. The overall trend, again, is towards uh, warming conditions. So, so let's talk about another uh, warming body of water, and it's, it's not too far from where you are right now. We've read that the Gulf of Maine is actually one of, if not the fastest warming body of water on the globe. First of all, is that true? And, and if so, why is that? It is true that over the last couple decades, the Gulf of Maine has warmed faster than most anywhere else in the globe. Over time, there will be variability to this. That there will still be cool years in the Gulf of Maine, but the trend is is very clearly showing uh, that there should be overall warming. People would obviously want to know what does the future hold. What can we expect? We can expect that over the next few decades, that there should be overall warming in the Gulf of Maine, but we should not discount the possibility that there may be a few cold years as well. And again, it just relates to the complexities associated with uh, what's happening with the Gulf Stream and the flow of cold water coming down from the Arctic and then what the particular prevalent atmospheric patterns are. Sean Burkle is a research assistant professor at the Climate Change Institute at the University of Maine, and he's Maine state climatologist. Sean, thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Great. Thank you, John.
Want to learn more about ice cover, temperature trends, and even a weather outlook for the week? Well, you can check out the Climate Reanalyzer at nextnewengland.org. Coming up, what happens when farm waste gets into well water? It's complicated, and it's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. We've reported here on how nutrients like phosphorus and nitrogen run off from farms into bodies of water, can cause algae to bloom and fish to die from lack of oxygen. But these chemicals can also leach into drinking water and cause problems for humans. One such contaminant is nitrate, a nitrogen compound found in manure and fertilizer. Nitrate in drinking water can be fatal for babies who drink it, and it can be carcinogenic. Four years ago, nitrate from manure in Sutton, Vermont, contaminated public drinking water there. All the residents on the water system got a written alert. Drinking water contamination alert, Sutton Water System. Levels of nitrate above drinking water standards. Do not give the water to infants or prepare infant formula or juice with the water. That's the voice of Ellen Pardoring with the Vermont Agency of Natural Resources. She says the federal government required that her department send out that notice. That's because the farm's runoff contaminated public drinking water. But 40% of Vermonters have private drinking wells. And when farm runoff contaminates those wells with nitrate, the government body tasked with enforcement in this case, the Agency of Agriculture, says it can't notify the community. This was one of several disturbing facts that Vermont Public Radio's Emily Corwin uncovered in her investigation into nitrate contamination in private wells. Emily is VPR's investigative reporter and editor. Emily, welcome back to Next. Hi, John. How are you doing? Doing well, and thanks for joining us uh, with this story. So we've said that 40% of Vermonters use private well water. How often are those wells tested? Right. Um, those wells are uh, not required to be tested um, in any way, really. It's up to the private well owners to do that. And of course, the health department is frequently encouraging Vermonters to test their private wells, but only about 5% um, actually do. However, people who live right next to farms or on farms, they've got a slightly different situation because the Agency of Agriculture is actually... Um, going out and asking them permission to test their wells in, in the hopes of being able to understand pesticide and other farm runoff, um, and also in order to try to address it. So what happens when the Agency of Agriculture tests a well and finds that the nitrate levels are over the legal limit? What happens next? Well, that's really the nut of my investigation, um, which is I, I found that what the agency says it does and what it actually does are different at times. And what they actually do do is rarely documented. What, what they say they do when a well tests over the legal limit for nitrate is they say that they tell the well owner and recommend that that owner, if they're drinking the water, find a different water source. And that they do do. That I confirmed. Um, but then they say they analyze the geography and the geology of the farmland uh, and 
in order to identify if vulnerable neighbors may also be drinking contaminated well water. And then they say that they go knock on those people's doors and ask to test their water um, if they think that, that the neighbors may be vulnerable to well contamination. And it's that which I found, A, is almost never documented, and B, I confirmed when it comes to testing neighbors' wells, um, in the cases that I reviewed, it, it doesn't appear to happen, at least not often. So, so in your story, you, you get into a dispute between two neighboring families. There are the Lagasses. They own a dairy farm. Next door to them are the Levinskys. Uh, when nitrate levels above the legal limit are found in the Levinskys' well, they think that it's coming from the Lagasses' farm. What can you tell us about this dispute, Emily? So... Um, the the Levinsky family, Mary Ellen and Jim Levinsky, they they moved to East Hardwick, this town in Vermont, in 1989. And uh, one day in the year 2000, Jim Levinsky's at work, and he discovers this rash under his wrists on the bottoms of his feet. And uh, his doctor says, "Listen, you need to get your water tested." And they find out that the Agency of Agriculture has this testing program, and the agency comes and for free tests their water. And the agency says, you need to stop drinking your water. And what they found is, you know, the rash was probably caused by low levels of an herbicide. That's not what was concerning the Agency of Agriculture. They've had very high levels of nitrate, this compound that is part of manure and fertilizer and had leached into the groundwater. The Levinskys, you know, immediately begin trying to get the agency to investigate. They suspect it's this big dairy farm next door run by the Lagasses. Now, the Agency of Agriculture, because of, you know, all of this prodding by Mary Ellen and Jim Levinsky, they do do a lot of investigation. And they write in 2002 that the Lagasses are not responsible. It's not the dairy farm. Then... In 2005, after additional investigation and testing, the Agency of Agriculture actually did believe that the Lagasses were likely uh, contributing at least to the contamination of the Levinsky well. But the agency never tells anyone that. They didn't send this in a letter to the Levinskys. As far as I understand, they did not send it to a le- in a letter to the farm owners. And so, um, and so nobody is held responsible. So at one point, Emily, you find that the Lagasses farm may well be responsible for some of the contamination, and that's something that the the department has actually uh, investigated. But then meanwhile, you go back and ask, and they say, well, it could be other things. It could be the Levinsky's own animals. I, I guess my question is, what do we know about the Lagas farm? I mean, is, is it up to date? Is it in compliance? Is it properly preventing contamination and runoff right now? So... You're getting at a really important question here, which is um, the differentiation of, you know, is a farm abiding by the current requirements? Uh, And the answer for the Lagasses are yes, they are proactive when it comes to protecting the environment. They are in uh, compliance with all of the requirements from the Agency of Agriculture. But then there's this other question, which is what happens if a farm is contaminating even though they're in compliance? And that is you know, what may, what the Levinsky's believe is happening um, with their water is they believe the Lagasses, even though they're in compliance, they're still spreading the fertilizer, the manure on cornfields, and the 
cornfields, you know, they believe may not be able to absorb it. And the nitrate may yet be leaching into their water. Um, And it's really hard to pin these things down. You know, I mean, you can argue that maybe the nitrates were there from farmers that preceded the Lagasses, maybe even the farmers who were on the Levinsky's land years and years before they got there. The thing that the Levinsky's are always coming back to, though, is that the Lagas farm is unlike, you know, dairy farms over the course of Vermont history, which have tended to be small sort of family farms, as is the trend these days. The the Lagas farm is has over a thousand head of cattle and they grew from about 150 cows in 1990 to that size. You know, it, it's pretty rapid growth and that's a pretty high concentration of manure that's all, you know, being stored on the Lagos farm and being spread on the Lagos fields. So I want to play a piece of tape here from your reporting from Jim Levinsky. Uh, it speaks to some of his frustrations with the way the state of Vermont is handling his complaint. If we were having a water issue caused by PFOAs or because we had a gas station next door that had a gas leak, obviously something happens really fast. But because it's an agricultural thing, it seems like it's just like not even being addressed. PFOA uh, in New England has been, uh, you know, related to the ChemFab, also the St. Gobain. It's one company bought the other. Um, these plastic plants in uh, southern New Hampshire, also in Vermont and uh, upstate New York. And, you know, in those cases, it was um, likely air pollution from manufacturing that led to these compounds getting into drinking water. And, you know, especially in Vermont, the state has been very proactive in, you know, suing St. Gobain and getting funds to remedy it. They were, uh, you know, very quickly uh, in both Vermont and New Hampshire found ways to get people alternative drinking water, you know, on the company's dime. Um And so Jim Levinsky is right. I mean, when an industry, what we think of as typical industries, uh, pollute, there in Vermont is a very different reaction um, than when farms pollute. When they actually do find contamination, I mean, how exactly are these standards being enforced? Enforcement is an option, but it's a choice for the Agency of Agriculture. When they discover that a farm is contaminating uh, groundwater, they do not have to do anything. I was shocked to learn that the section chief at the agency who's responsible for sort of initiating, collecting the data and distributing it on nitrate contamination, he was actually misinformed about the law. I overheard this exchange between him and his boss, which I want to have you play. Um, So Kerry Jaguar is the section chief I'm talking about, and his boss, Jim Leland, were both in a room with me. And Kerry Jaguar was was trying to tell me if a farmer doesn't violate these other practices, the agency's hands are tied. Uh, so, so here's the bite. If it's my well um, that's been tested and you let me know there's nitrate in it, the agency, agency can't impose a remedy. But we, could, yeah. we could impose a remedy. But um, no, um, if it's some of these folks, Jim, if they, they've, I mean, if they choose not what to do anything. What it really does is it prioritizes that for further sampling, right? We're going to continue to look. But it sounds if like... It's over a standard, we're not going to walk away from it and just say, good luck. We, that we don't do. Okay. So I feel like I'm getting slightly mixed messages here. That we don't do. If it's over the standard, we're going to continue to sample and analyze, uh, especially if it's an on-farm water supply. Uh, we have all the authority in the world to do that. 
so you can you can see why you know if if an agency has confusion about what they are legally able to do, they might choose to sort of offer the carrot instead of the stick. They don't, you know, necessarily aren't aware of the fact that they can enforce these laws if they want to. Um, and, you know, along those lines, when I when I was asking, you know, why is your process with the farmers, um, you know, so casual? Uh, this is what I learned. We have a, a small staff, and, I'm, and it sounds like you're, you've got a picture of big government and systems and processes. We've got a community that has contacted the Agency of Agriculture to help them solve a problem. We send one person, maybe two, that assesses the situation, tries to figure out what's going on, tries to figure out what's going on underground, and what ag practices could be changed to mitigate the issue in the community. This is a community effort that the, and the farms are the heart of the community, and everybody's involved in the solution. It's not so much a, a regulatory process that initiates from the agency. From the reporting that you've done, does it seem as though the movement needs to be away from this casual approach taken from the Agency of Agriculture, maybe to something that looks more like an enforcement mechanism, like a, like a state or a federal EPA? You know, activists in Vermont, environmental activists, really feel that the Agency of Agriculture has a conflict of interest, that uh, they were designed to be a lobbyist for agriculture and that they are, you know, don't have the background that's necessary to be the enforcer of, you know, agricultural pollution. Um, And Chris Killian is the sort of head uh, spokesperson for environmentalists when it comes to agricultural problems. He, he's with the Conservation Law Foundation in Vermont. And he sort of explains the, you know, changes in the trends in Vermont agriculture and, and also some of the frustration that people like him, activists and environmentalists like him, are feeling. So, so let's listen to this bite. Uh, these facilities are best characterized as milk factories not as, uh, you know, Snowflake and Bessie and little girls on three-legged stools milking cows. That just doesn't exist anymore. The, ki- the, the barefoot um, young boy with a straw hat and a switch bringing the cows in, that, that's, that's a fiction. We're talking about industrial practices and where those industrial practices impact neighbors and impact people and put their health at risk. Those industrial actors, those industrial farms should be held accountable for that. Emily, when we've done reporting on contamination before, there's there's always this this idea that if someone is being harmed after a certain amount of time, if governmental agencies aren't going to do anything about it, they'll just go to the courts and sue. I mean, when you talk to the the Levinskys and, and the Lagasses, I mean, is there any thought that maybe the Levinskys are just going to take the Lagasses to court and say, "Hey, look, you're contaminating my groundwater. Do something about it." I mean. I got to tell you, John, having moved from New Hampshire, reporting in New Hampshire to Vermont relatively recently, this is, I think, something that is cultural and perhaps different between the two states. And something that makes Vermont unique is this incredible commitment to community. And when I talked to people whose wells had been contaminated, you know, over and over again, I was told, like, I would never sue my neighbor. It, it would almost be, you know, an unthinkable tragedy to, to have to sue your neighbor here. When I talked to Chris Killian, the lawyer with the Conservation Law Foundation, 
I mean, I almost felt like he wanted me to encourage people to sue over this. Like, he's frustrated that the courts haven't had as much opportunity to, you know, pressure farms and, and, you know, maybe pressure lawmakers to look at this differently. I guess I'm wondering, out of all this reporting, what do you think can happen next? I mean, what's the solution for homeowners living next to dairy farms? There's not going to be lawsuits, it seems. Nothing's really being regulated at the at the state level in the way that it maybe would be regulated in other states. So so what do you see happening next? These issues, the issues of, of how to regulate farms, they are not new in, in Vermont. I mean, my, you know, discoveries about nit- the, the widespread nitrate contamination and the way that the agency is handling it, that may be new. But lawmakers have had a lot of opportunities to make changes and they haven't. Um, I think that, you know, Realistically, there are a few things that could happen. Um, There could be stricter manure spreading rules. Right now, you know, there are rules about how much manure you can spread on cornfields when you're growing corn to to feed your animals. Um, They could be stricter, and that might help. Um, There could be, you know, some effort to try to make it more economically beneficial or rather economically viable to pasture graze your cows. Right now, it's you know, it's a matter of economies of scale. It's it's a matter of trying to compete with, um, you know, other milk prices that keep people from pasture grazing animals. You you know, you need a lot more pasture per animal that way. But it probably would reduce um, a lot of the contamination issues that we're facing. So that's sort of a, a harder nut to crack that one. And um you know, and then and then there's, you know, the, the even harder nut to crack, which is convincing Americans to spend more on food, which, you know, we don't like to do. But um, buying, you know, pasture grazed organic milk, it's expensive, but it, it does probably make a difference to the environment. Emily Corwin is VPR's investigative reporter and editor. You can read more on her investigation at nextnewengland.org. Emily, as always, good to talk with you. Thanks so much for joining us. Nice to be here. We're going to stay on the farm now to grapple with another issue that's worrying those in Vermont's dairy industry. Several thousand migrant farm workers, many undocumented, do much of the hard work on the state's farms. But there's been a new anxiety among those workers and the farmers who employ them since sweeping changes to immigration policy made by President Trump one year ago. For the first time since 2010, arrests and detentions by the U.S. Border Patrol increased in Vermont, New Hampshire, and northeastern New York last year. John Dillon went to a recent gathering of Mexican workers in Middlebury to find out how life has changed in the first year of the Trump administration. To give you a sense of how important Mexican farm workers are to the Vermont dairy economy, Consider that twice a year, the Mexican government comes to a Vermont farm community to help hundreds of its citizens with financial and legal advice and to issue government IDs. About 140 mostly undocumented workers turned out at a church meeting hall on a Saturday to share a warm meal with friends and to meet with their government officials. Jose Aguilar had come over from New Hampshire to renew his passport. Our interpreter asked him a question. When do you want to head home? tomorrow morning. (laughs) Yeah, because I I will be late today. Aguilar, who likes to practice his English, jokes that he can't leave for Mexico right away because there's a long line to get his passport renewed. 
But he's not going home. And ask him why he's in New England, and he gives you the same answer as everyone else here. I work in the farm with the cows, working, and working hard. <laughs> Aguilar slips back to Spanish as he talked about how living conditions for his family in Mexico, their housing, even their basic nutrition, has improved with the remittances he sends home. Yes, the sacrifice is worth it because here we can achieve what we could never achieve in Mexico. So the work is steady, the pay helps their families, but most of the farm workers say the stress of living while undocumented has increased over the last year. Felipe works on a large dairy farm with about a dozen other Mexicans in western Vermont. Yes, because with Trump's immigration laws, one walks around with a bit more fear and is a bit more nervous to, to leave the house and go out. Chronic stress and anxiety definitely has a direct correlation to poor health outcomes. Julia Doucette is a nurse with the Open Door Health Clinic in Middlebury, and she's here at the mobile consulate to offer free health screenings for the farm workers. Doucette says the clinic recently surveyed about 100 migrant workers to gauge their current level of stress over the past year. And we found that pretty much 80% of the people that we interviewed felt either more scared or a lot more scared, more anxious or a lot more anxious about going out in public places um, and doing social events. And they were somewhat more scared to leave the farm to access health care as well. All right, well, I can show you what the problem is. All right. On a farm with sweeping views of the Adirondacks to the west and the Green Mountains to the east, dairy farmer Rob Hunt is focused on a broken piece of machinery, but he's also concerned about the future of his workforce. For me, I work with these guys every day, and you know, I know where they're from, I know how many kids they have, I know a lot about them, so I'm concerned about you know, what happens to them, their safety and, and security. But also, if they swoop in and clean out my workforce, my wife and I can't run this place by ourselves. So it's, it's, yeah, the concern is real. Hunt says the best solution would be some sort of guest worker program that would allow people to be here legally. He says he pays his workers as much or more than Americans if you include the housing, TV, utilities, and transportation he provides but he can't find U.S. workers. There's always a shortage of American labor on farms. You know, our day starts at 2.30 in the morning, and that eliminates about 75% of the American population right there. Add the fact cows have to be milked 365 days a year in conditions that are often hot, cold, muddy, or smelly. And that pretty much eliminates the last 5% of the American population. Jose Aguilar, who's been waiting for his new passport at the Middlebury Mobile Consulate, agrees. It's hard because sometimes we need to work in the nice, and uh, it's, it's kind of, some Americans, they can do that. It's a lot of hours, like 12, 14 a day. Sometimes we have day off. Yeah, I think they can do it for a few days, but after that, they won't be broke up. So <laughs> that's the funny part. Is it true? <laughs> yeah. Aguilar, like farmer Rob Hunt, would also like to see Mexican workers be able to come here under a guest worker permit. That way, he could travel back and forth to Mexico without concern to see his family. He says if he could talk to people making the immigration laws, he would tell them that most immigrants are not criminals or bad people. They just want the opportunity to support a family 
and live a normal life. That's VPR's John Dillon reporting. Coming up, we'll get behind the wheel with some nervous teens as they learn to drive on the ice and snow. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. You've probably said it to yourself this winter, it's New England, why can't anyone drive in the snow? Reporter Chris Jensen went to find a school that teaches the dying art of winter driving. When rally driver Tim O'Neill was a teenager, trying to learn how to drive on the snow and ice-covered roads in the North Country, it was, well, a hit-or-miss situation. I spent an incredible amount of time uh, learning the old way, which is hitting things. Now, O'Neill runs a 600-acre driving school in Dalton, New Hampshire, that focuses on rally driving. But it also includes a one-day winter driving course. And on a Saturday in January, about a dozen folks have paid the $499 tuition. They're driving on a huge open area covered in ice and snow and surrounded by snowbanks. Instructor Chris Komar is riding with 16-year-old Brenna Morgan. At 30 miles per hour, Komar plans to tell her to break and swerve around a make-believe moose. At the last moment, he'll tell her whether to go left or right. <laughs> what was that Don't about? like this. <laughs> okay, go, go, go. That's fast enough. Stop. Go right. Turn back. Counter steer a little bit of gas. Good. Right? So it was pretty responsive, right? It's hard to let go of a teenager and just let them be on these roads. That's Francine Morgan, Brenna's mom. She's a new driver, and, you know, that worries me. And I want to make sure that she has all the tools in the toolbox to keep herself safe. Chief Instructor Travis Hansen says his goal is to make sure people stay out of trouble. The class starts with the right tires. We'd say that an all-season tire sucks in all seasons, right? <laughs> but the focus is being smooth with the steering, gas, and brakes. Tires have far less grip on snow than dry pavement, and accelerating or braking too hard reduces the grip further. It can cause the car to slide. Here's how rally school owner Tim O'Neill describes it. It's sort of like walking on the ice. You take smaller little tiny steps, and you're much more gentle. You don't try to run on the ice. Students also learn about using the brakes and the gas to shift the weight of the vehicle to the front or the rear tires to get grip where it's most needed. And when the car starts sliding, they're told to look where they want to go, not at what they're afraid of hitting. By mid-afternoon, most of the students are confidently handling skids. Brenna was nervous at the start of the class. She'd only driven on snow twice, but she's had a good day. I feel like I could keep myself safe if there were adverse conditions, which is really comforting. <laughs> but it's been a tough day for high school student Wade Atkinson. Wade's Acura has all-season tires. There's very little grip. Go right, turn back, counter steer a little bit this way, a little bit of gas. Stop, they're done. They're done. Oh. Yep, you came in a little bit fast. Yeah. All right, let's see if she'll come out of here. Oh, losing control, it's so scary. You, you feel completely helpless, and you're worried you're going to break something, and that's probably the largest, like, thing that really, really, like, hurts 
is being afraid that you are going to break something on the car. After all that, Wade's conclusion is that he really, really wants snow tires. That was Chris Jensen reporting. Composer Amy Beach was born in Henniker, New Hampshire in 1867. By the time she was 29, she was famous all over the world for being the first American woman to write a symphony. To celebrate the 150th anniversary of her birth, the University of New Hampshire has been honoring Amy Beach with a series of special performances. NHPR's Sean Hurley recently visited the school to learn more about the composer and her music. As two student pianists rehearse Amy Beach's piano duet, The Brownies, across the hall from her office, UNH music professor Peggy Vots begins to tell me about the composer. Beach was born in Hanukkah. She was the only child. Her mother says when she was not two years old yet, her mother would be singing a hymn or something and she would harmonize. But despite knowing Amy had a special relationship to music. Her mother in particular had a philosophy of not allowing the child to indulge every wish or whim early. So she denied her touching the piano, playing the piano. And so Amy Beach began to play it in her head. She went to her grandparents' farm in the summer. And while she was there, she in her head wrote some piano waltzes. She came home and she told her mother that she'd made some waltzes and her mother said, well, there's no piano there. You couldn't have done it. She said, oh, she did it in her head and then sat down at the piano and played them. Amy Beach was four years old. And at some point, her aunt came visiting from San Francisco and her aunt said, this is ridiculous. Let her play the piano, you know. So then her mother started giving her lessons. So she got three short piano lessons a week. If they wanted to punish her when she was a child, they'd play something sad on the piano, and she'd cry. Usually, the punishment was this. Louis Gottschalk's Last Hope. She made her debut with um, the Boston Symphony when she was 16, playing concerto with them, when her parents finally allowed her to perform in public. I think, left to her own devices, she would have been a performing pianist. But at the age of 18, Amy met and soon married the wealthy and considerably older Dr. H.H.A. Beach. I mean, what he wanted her to do was compose. He was fixated on it. And so, Amy Beach began to work on her mass in E-flat major. Uh, just a huge undertaking. Uh, and that's the first thing she, she did. It was premiered by the Handel and Haydn Society. It was 1889, and Beach was 22 years old. She was really almost completely self-trained. She would um, study everything that, that the Boston Symphony performed, for example. She'd go home and she'd try to write it all down. Then she'd study the way the composer had done it. She translated from the original French Berlioz's book on orchestration so that she could study orchestration in that way. She never learned to cook in her life. She never did housewife duties, never learned to drive, <laughs> and no sort of practical uh, abilities. Dominique, you, no pranks from you pirates. Couldn't cook or drive, but she could write an opera. As students Kate Curtis and Zach Hartridge tell me, 
as they sing and discuss Beach's lone opera, Cabildo. It's a really great opera because it's wicked accessible, because it's in English, and it's about pirates and ghosts and romance. So, like, I wasn't afraid to tell people, like, anybody to come to it. Oh, and it's short. Yeah. It's only 45 minutes. Yeah. Yeah, a short yeah. pirate opera. It's probably as good as operas get. <laughs> in the UNH recital hall, student orchestra bassoonist Nick Pitcher plays an A note and the rest of the orchestra tunes to him before playing Beach's Bal Masque. A tricky piece, Pitcher says. The melody is written lightly and the accompaniment is written heavy, so we had a lot of troubles with that when we were going through really knowing who had the melody where and what to bring out and stuff. The difficulty with Bal Masque, Peggy Vots tells me, is that Beach wrote it originally as a piano piece. She only later orchestrated it to prepare herself for writing the Gaelic Symphony, the first ever symphony written by an American woman. Although Amy Beach spent her young childhood in New Hampshire and most of her adult life in Boston and New York, she did spend 20 summers at the McDowell Colony in Peterborough. She voted here and maintained her residency here and frequently returned to visit one of the many beach clubs in the state to play and talk about music, often, as Peggy Vots tells me, with children. And this is a letter written to the Etude magazine by a little girl named Lizabel Gay, who was from the beach club uh, in Wolfboro. There are nearly 30 members in all. Most of us are under 12 years of age. When Mrs. Beach plays, she lets us all stand around her. We wish all children could have a beach club, and of course they can, but there is only one Mrs. Beach, and she belongs to us. And she still does. That's New Hampshire Public Radio's Sean Hurley reporting. Next is produced at WNPR by Andrea Moraskin. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. Production help this week from Rich Tozier and Mark Degon. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. You can hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Melville Charitable Trust. And it's powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and WNPR.